on this Palm Sunday, as you sit in your apartment or your home, some of you alone, some with family or housemates, it's going to sound difficult, if not offensive, for me to talk to you about what I'm going to talk about this morning. Because I'm going to talk to you about success. Success in a season of fear. Personally, for me, I've gone through phases of response to the pandemic over the past four weeks. The first phase was uncertainty. I just had so many questions, and there were so many things that just weren't clear. After uncertainty, then came a phase of, of loss, loss of routine, loss of in-person relationship, loss of security, and now, the third phase, the phase of fear. I mean, I don't need to remind any of you of the statistics here in Princeton, in New Jersey, in Pennsylvania, across the country, around the world. The statistics are there, and the statistics are frightening. And in a season of fear, to talk about the word success, I mean, it just sounds alien, remote, offensive. I mean, so many things that six weeks ago were markers of success, they're now out the window. They've evaporated. They're powerless in this moment. I want to talk to you about Jesus' success. And I want to relate his success to our season of fear. Because above all, if you are a Christian, you are called to be a person of faith, first and foremost, not fear. Even in times of fear, it is faith that should lead us, faith that can lead us. Every year at Stonehill Church, we have a verse, what we call, for lack of a better title, the year verse. Very creative. And this year's year verse is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of courage and of love, and of clear, sound thinking. There's nothing that builds faith more than to think about Jesus Christ. And in this environment of fear, to see him and to see him as the success he was that can transform us. So, once again... We're going to take a look back to the Old Testament, to the, to the prophet Isaiah. We've been doing this for several weeks, and we have before us a text that was chosen months ago, and yet is just divinely designed for this very moment. The text is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. And in this text... 
we have a, a, the beginning of a picture of Jesus. So why don't you get there to Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. Get there in a Bible, on a tablet, in your smartphone, whatever. Get over there, and, and you'll, you'll see the beginning of a beautiful picture. You see verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52 are part of a single unit, a, a long poem that begins in 52, 13 and carries on through 53, verse 12. It's a poem, 15 verses long, five verses, excuse me, five stanzas. And each stanza has in it three verses. So today we're going to look at the first stanza of the poem. This poem was written around 700 B.C. Crazily enough, it's a poem all about Jesus, God's Messiah, who wouldn't arrive for centuries after the poem was written. The theme of the poem, uh, where the poem starts, And where the poem ends is success. The astonishing success of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. We're going to focus, as I said, on verses 13 to 15. So I'm only going to read those verses. The rest of the poem, chapter 53, you can, and given that it's Holy Week, I would recommend that you do read it on your own. Isaiah 52, verses 13 to 15. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they now see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. This is God's word. O Heavenly Father, send forth your Spirit to take this text and plant it deep within our hearts. May our hearts be good soil that receives the seed and allows it to take deep, deep root. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. In verses 13 to 15, God the Father is speaking through Isaiah. And God the Father affirms three things about Jesus the Messiah. So let's take them one at a time. The first affirmation, verse 13, is this. Jesus the Messiah will be an astonishing success. You can't miss it. Isaiah's great poem, verse 13, begins with Jesus' success. Behold, my servant, Isaiah starts out. Let me just stop there. My servant is one of the two titles given to Jesus the Messiah in this poem. The other one is in chapter 53, verse 1. The arm of the Lord, you know, God's demonstration of his power. But here it's the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now that's the way that 
This version I'm using, the English Standard Version, the ESV, translates it. Some of you may be using other translations. The NLT or the NET or the CSB or the ABC or whatever. And and, and in some of your translations it reads, Behold, my servant shall succeed. And I think that's the better translation. In fact, even here in the ESV, there's a footnote. And at the bottom of the page, it tells you that you can translate this. Behold, my servant shall prosper or shall succeed. Messiah will succeed. He will accomplish, God's saying. He will accomplish what I, the Lord, have set before him. He will win. He will fulfill his calling and achieve his task. He will get all that done. And as a result, Isaiah continues, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. A servant, lowly, high and lifted up and exalted. This is Jesus now. High and exalted. I hope you hear the references there to Jesus' resurrection, lifted up to his return to the Father's presence, exalted, to his enthronement at the right hand of the living God, lifted up high and exalted. That's Jesus. Jesus succeeded in his mission. His life and his death, they were a success. He did exactly what God the Father had planned for him to do. On one occasion, While he was on earth, he told us exactly what the Father had called him to do, what his mission was. He said, Luke 19, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Wow. That's you, the lost. That's me, the lost. He's found me out. Has he found you out? God the Father puts Jesus' mission a different way later in this poem. Over in chapter 53, verse 11, he says, My righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous before me, for he will bear their sins. That was Jesus' mission. And Jesus succeeded. He accomplished what God called him to do. I don't know about you, but I want to put my life into the hands of someone who succeeded before God. Back in February of 2015, 21 Christians were lined up on a beach in North Africa where they were beheaded for their faith. Were they failures? They were not, we are not fools to commit our all to the one who has succeeded, to Jesus, to give to him our time, our focus, our money, our relationships, our future, our quarantine, our daily sacrifices, to give them all to him because Messiah is, has been, and will be a success. 
Second affirmation about Jesus, verse 14. Messiah's success, Isaiah's saying, Messiah's success will look like an astonishing failure. He writes, verse 14, as many were astonished at you. Let's focus on that word astonished. I mean, astonished is a flexible word. In pre-pandemic days, you could be astonished at an unexpected baseball score. You know, wow, the Yankees actually beat the Red Sox. I'm from Boston. You could be astonished by a sunset. I was talking to someone several days ago, someone from Stonehill Church, who's part of a project of making masks for hospitals. And she had been delivering some masks, and she was on her way home, and she called me. And as we were talking, she suddenly interrupted, and she said, Oh, Pastor Matt, the sun is setting, and there are rays of light shining out through the clouds. It's astonishing. And I looked out the window, and she was right. It was astonishing. It was beautiful. Here, in this text, astonishment is not about beauty. It's not about unexpected, glorious surprise. It's dark, the astonishment here. It's negative. It's crucifixion. It's people being appalled and horrified at what they saw when Jesus hung upon the cross. I mean, as Isaiah goes on in the verse, he he provides us with phrases that deepen and explain what he means by this astonishment. And he presents this picture of Jesus being astonishingly disfigured and harmed at the cross. He writes, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's as if he's saying, so horrible was his suffering, so, so uh, disfiguring was his mistreatment that you'd have to ask, how could this man, so beaten, be the Messiah? Or even worse, how could this bloody form be human, be among the children of mankind, as he puts it? Those of you who know the Gospels will realize that this verse says a lot more about the ugliness of Jesus' death than do the Gospels themselves. All that the Gospels will say about his death are things like they scourged him, they mocked him, they crucified him. Just verbs. This is giving the details. A crucified Messiah, marred, disfigured, That upends so many definitions of success. How could someone, in light of such suffering and defeat, be considered a success? The Apostle Paul, in the first century Roman Empire, faced that very pushback time and again. I mean, how could could a crucified Galilean be the Messiah? Be God in the flesh. Be Savior of the world. 
You see, in Paul's culture, in ours too, success was power. It was ease. It was fame. It was winning. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness. Jesus was weak. He failed. Uh, Christians are weak. They're a kind of people who need an extra boost. They need a crutch. They lack inner strength and self-reliance. Faith and patience are weak virtues. Sacrificing for others is weak. It doesn't get you ahead. That'd be the kind of things that Paul would hear, that we hear today. And in a season of fear like this, these kinds of, of comments, these kinds of inner voices, these kinds of doubts become stronger and more tempting. But that was not Jesus' path to give in to those kinds of doubts. And it's not your path either. And the third affirmation exposes those doubts and voices for exactly what they are, the foolishness of human wisdom. Third affirmation, verse 15. Messiah's success will be astonishingly far-reaching. Look at what Isaiah writes, verse 15, so shall he, Messiah, sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle. What on earth is going on with that word? That's a familiar word in the Old Testament. It's used in relation to priests and to sacrifices. A worshiper would bring an animal. The the priest would tie it up, kill it, pour out the blood, and then sprinkle or spatter the blood upon the worshiper for forgiveness for right standing before God. And so, so shall that blood provide forgiveness and right standing with God. And what Isaiah is saying here is that that's what Messiah has done. He has sprinkled, he's provided the opportunity for right standing, for forgiveness before God for, uh, for many nations. So successful is his sacrifice that it has sprinkled many nations, not just the Jewish nation. But other nations, in so many different places and in so many different times, Christ has sprinkled Egyptians and Japanese and Mayans and Swiss and Bantus and Chileans and Nigerians and Mexicans and Americans and, and yes, even Canadians. One of the things that I love about Stonehill Church is that by the grace of God, we have so many nations represented, sprinkled. These people sprinkled by the saving blood of Jesus. Isaiah goes on. So successful is Jesus' sacrifice that it sprinkles all levels of people. I mean, back then you would expect an ugly sacrifice to sprinkle the ordinary Jane or the ordinary Joe. But here, even kings are included. And even though the, 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 the initial news of Jesus' success through crucifixion and resurrection, even though that news at first sounds totally crazy 
that which they hadn't been told, that which they hadn't heard. Even though that was the case, when they understood, they saw. And they realized the gift that was being offered offered to them. They saw. They understood. There's nothing more that you need to do than to see and to understand. One of my favorite stories about seeing Jesus for who he is, looking to Jesus, is the story of how a great preacher in England, in London in the late ni- later 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, became a Christian. And it's a story of, of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15. Seeing what he previously had not understood. Here's what he writes. I sometimes think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been that the goodness of God sent to me a calamity, a snowstorm, kind of like our calamity today. One Sunday morning, I was going to a certain church, but I could not get there because of the snow, so I turned down a side street and I came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been, oh, a dozen or 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, a denomination. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache, but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be rescued. The pastor did not come that morning. He was snowed in. But at last, as we were all sitting there, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is important that preachers be trained. But this man was not. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was from Isaiah. Look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Now, the man did not even pronounce the words correctly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. The preacher began his sermon this way. My dear friends, this is a very simple text. It says, look, look unto me, look. Now, look and don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot. Ain't lifting your finger. It's just look. A man don't need to go to college to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. Now, when he had managed to spin out ten minutes or so this sort of argument, he was at the end of his rope. And then he looked at me up in the balcony. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew that I was a visitor And fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did look miserable. But I hadn't been accustomed to having remarks about my personal appearance be made from the pulpit before. (laughs) 
However, it was a good blow. It struck home in my heart. The man continued, Young man, you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey my text, now this moment, you will be saved. So then, lifting up his hands, he shouted, as apparently only a primitive, primitive Methodist could do, and said, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look, and then you will live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said for the remainder of that sermon. I was so captured by the one thought, look and you shall be saved. That is one of millions of stories of an astonishingly successful Messiah. An astonishingly successful Messiah who endured astonishingly painful suffering for our rescue. Let me conclude with three quick contacts. First of all, I hope that you have been sprinkled. I hope that you have looked to Jesus for salvation. For all of us, including those who, like Charles Spurgeon, grew up in a church, for all of us, there has to be a moment when we realize Jesus poured out his life for me. It's his blood that will rescue me. Look to Jesus. Second contact. One of the impacts of a season of fear like this is to wake all of us up to the shallow definitions of success that are all around us. Success is not about power. Success is not about ease or fame or winning. Success is about sacrificing in order to fulfill God's mission in your life. And a big part, the central part of that mission is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbors as yourself. So third contact. I want you, therefore, to connect Jesus' success to the sacrifices that you are making right now during this time of fear. Daily sacrifices. You may be fed up with the isolation. You may be fed up with washing your hands time and again. You may be fed up with social distancing. But like the Messiah, the story is not over if it is still a story of difficult sacrifice. Press on. Hold on. Seek, like Jesus, to have God say to you one day in the future, behold, this one, like his master, his savior, his Lord Jesus, this one has succeeded. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, today's Palm Sunday, 
the beginning of Holy Week. And you have juxtaposed Holy Week here in New Jersey with a week of great trial and fear. By your Spirit, rescue us. Uh, Bring us back to Jesus, the true success, the astonishingly successful Messiah. Help us to have faith renewed in Him, faith for the first time in Him. And let us follow Him then in obedience, the obedience of sacrifice for the blessing of those around. We pray in Jesus' great, great name. Amen.